This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. And I would ask you, if especially if you've been following the book of Acts, that you would simply just trace for a little bit his experiences leading up to this point. And I'm only talking about the second missionary journey, not including even the first one. Just this second missionary journey, when, when Paul trudged into Corinth, he was a man of nearly 50 years of age. He had traveled on foot some three to four days from Athens alone, and it's estimated that by this time, uh, in just the second missionary journey alone, he has traveled some 1,200 miles on foot. It's only been some six to eight, maybe nine weeks since he was badly beaten in Philippi, imprisoned and put in stocks so his body would cramp up. He's had to leave three cities in a hurry. He has, con- he has uh, confronted or experienced continual opposition from his own countrymen, the Jews primarily, but even from some Gentiles. And this has led to riots and attacks against him. And this is only the second missionary journey. And now he's running out of money as he arrives alone at this busy, immoral, idolatrous city called Corinth. (laughs) Sometimes our body conquers our soul. And we could be the strongest of people in our perspectives about God, let's say our theology, but life just wears us down. He has seen fruit, that's to be sure. There's been great things that have happened even in this second missionary journey, but it's come at a price, it's come at a toll. And Paul acknowledges that when he arrived at Corinth, this is what he was like. He was just worn out. He was tired, he was weak, he was trembling, he was fearful. And it's here that we see how, how the Lord, how our Savior... How the Lord Jesus is aware of his condition and tenderly encourages and rejuvenates Paul in several ways, wonderful ways. Essential to see that this morning because he's still doing it today. For tired believers, for tired servants of the Lord, be it that you may be serving the Lord formally in some ministry capacity or informally serving in some capacity for tired Christian parents who have been homeschooling, who are worn out, for tired Christians living in this culture, you should find hope. I hope you'll find hope and encouragement from this passage and a reminder. And here's, I think, what we take, the main thing we take from Luke's narrative of what happened in Corinth in verses 1 through 17 is this, beloved. That God is faithful to provide divine encouragement to his servants. That we may faithfully continue to serve his name, to carry on the mission. Which is what the book of Acts is about, right? The tracing of how the word spread. And there's moments when God's servants who are involved in the mission need this kind of strengthening and refreshment and I think that's what stands out as different in this account here God is faithful to provide divine encouragement to his servants that we may faithfully continue 
to serve his name, to carry on the mission. He knows just when you need an injection of palpable hope. And he knows just how to do it. Because our Lord, he is the servant, the servant of God who endured Gethsemane, endured the cross, and he knows how to come to the aid of his servants. Now, as I read the account this morning, I'm going to read verses 1 through 17. I'd like you to just have in your mind these three main ways in which, God enc- in which the Lord encouraged Paul. He encouraged them through providing him ministry partners, so you'd be listening for that, material provisions, and then lastly, motivating promises. The three key ways that he provided for, for Paul. Let's read then verses 1 through 17. Acts 18, 1 through 17. It says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews and the Christ, that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people." And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Now, let's go back and think here uh, again of how the Lord encouraged Paul at this critical stage of his ministry. And it begins by providing Paul ministry partners. In verses 1 through 3 there, we don't know how exactly Paul met Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, we know he sought them. But we do know this, that it was, it was the sovereign providence, the sovereign mercy of God that brought this couple right there when he brought Paul to Corinth. Paul was running out of funds. And the Lord provided a couple who had a business 
in his very trade. And God had used, think about this, God had used an edict in Rome from the Emperor Claudius, which drove out the Jews, or many of the Jews from Rome, including this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, in order to bring this couple to Corinth and then bring Paul to them in order to take care of Paul in more than even financial ways. And what had happened in Rome was very interesting. <clears throat> a, Ro a Roman historian uh, called Suetonius, uh, he wrote that civil unrest, or riots had been instigated in Rome by a crestus. Now, most scholars, many scholars, believe that this is a garbled Latin transliteration of Christus. That is to say that when, uh, when Jews from Rome were present on the day of Pentecost and they heard the gospel preached and the Spirit of God descended upon them, Jews became believers and went back to Rome. And some sort of, again, division was taking place in Rome and there was civil unrest. It was among the Jews, which is why he kicked out the Jews because of some Christus or Christus, the Latin transliteration of Christ, if you would. And so here is this, once again, an, ex uh, an expression of human hostility against the gospel in Rome, and God uses it to further the gospel and bringing this couple to meet Paul just when he needed them. The Lord brought this pair, this wonderful pair into Paul's life at a time when he needed friendship, at a time when he needed encouragement, a place to live, a way to make his own, own living at that time. <clears throat> it reminds me, <clears throat> this whole story reminded me of how the Lord brought our brother Raimundo Estenas here, who fled not Rome, but fled Cuba. And it was at a time, if you weren't here in our church some years ago, it was at a time when our Hispanic ministry had gone through a massive trial through the result of an immorality on, on the Hispanic leader and we were at a very low point in the Hispanic ministry here trying to reach the community. And here God lifts this individual from Cuba and our brother and he drops him, parachutes him right here in Moraga. And through various connections within a few days he reaches out, I reach out, and, and, and here we have him. You know. Here the Lord brings a brother who has the same convictions and same burdens. You know. Well, the Lord brought this pair, this pair, Aquila and Priscilla, into, into Paul's life, and they struck up a friendship quickly. It says he stayed with them. We're not sure when they became Christians. There's no record here of Paul having to evangelize them. They probably had been converted while they were in Rome. And it, and it, was, it was both not just their business, but it was their, their loving, strong marriage and household that Paul needed. Uh, these, they must have had a very strong marriage. Each time the couple is mentioned, it, it, they're mentioned together every time. It's Achilla and Priscilla or Priscilla and Achilla, but it's always both of them. They labored alongside Paul together. Together they will teach a man named Apollos and help disciple him. They used their homes. <clears throat> they were flexible. They were very flexible as, as Christians, open to God's leading. They would, you'll see soon that they went with Paul to Ephesus after Corinth, and then later they returned to Rome. They were hospitable. That is, they opened their homes to the church. Uh, a, a, a house church met in their home in Corinth. You'll read that in 1 Corinthians 16. And a house church met in their home in Rome. You read that in Romans chapter 16. This was a tremendous couple. 
they were they were also they were also tremendously devoted to the to the gospel. When Paul concludes the book of Romans, he says, "They risked their lives for my sake." <laughs> They risk their lives for my sake, and he says, and they are appreciated, this couple, are appreciated by all of the Gentile churches. Imagine that. All the Gentile churches that had come to exist by the time he writes the book of Romans. And in one of the very last verses that Paul wrote, he sent greetings to this couple who had become his lifelong friends in 2 Timothy 4.19. And he refers to them as his co-workers, his partners, in the gospel. Well, I can think of so many of you, beloved, whether you're here or you're at home where you might be, so many of you couples, and not just couples, but singles also, who, and others who have moved on, who have been this to me over the years of this church being started some 26 years ago, and being this to some of our elders that we've had here over the years. Uh, you know, God did not design us to go it alone in ministry. And that's his wonderful design. It's his plan, right? And uh, all ministry, in my opinion, all ministry should be team ministry because we desperately need one, one another. And God's design is that. He's made us that way. Remember in 1 Corinthians 12 that Paul uses the uh, metaphor of a human body to teach that the church is interdependent. Uh, that, that we need each other. The hand needs the foot and the eye needs the ear and so forth. And so all ministry should be uh, a team ministry. Uh, we need each other's gifts. We need each other's company. We need each other's input. We need each other's shoulders to cry on. We need to share each other's burdens. And it's the Lord that I want you to see here. It is the Lord who has who has who weaved together, brought together providentially this beautiful relationship. As Paul enters this this. The city that is overwhelming to him, and here he is in great weakness, and, and, and the Lord brings into his life a couple that will be instrumental and friends for the rest of his life, sharing in the ministry load, these strategic partnerships. Yeah. That's the first thing the Lord provided were for Paul when a time when he was down. He provided ministry partners, people to share in the load, you, beloved, you may be an Aquila or a Priscilla, or if you're a couple, you may be an Aquila and Priscilla to brothers and sisters who are right now growing weary and not saying anything about it. Growing weary of serving our church, carrying the load. These days we have uh, less people with more hats. Less people with more hats. And I find over the years that when Christians come to when a Christian comes to truly understand the grace of God, that it has not simply to do with a right standing before God, like, like a stamped ticket, but that the grace of God is something also that flows through them to others and they understand this interdependence, then they don't merely consume, but they contribute. Because that's the way God has made us, as a body. And there's so many of you uh, in, in that context who you understand this you're contributing but at a time like this and as we continue to restart reorganize restore uh, ministries you may be some of you yet an Achille and a Priscilla to someone else who's getting tired of carrying the load uh, by themselves 
And I'm even encouraged by those. I know there's some who have the conviction. Some of you who are at home, it's your own conviction in your heart that uh, according to your conscience to not, to not be here. But we even have people who serve from afar. And they serve through Zoom and they gather things and they organize things and they send emails and they're still involved within the, within the parameters of their own conscience. The whole thing to understand here is this. That people get tired in life, just from life, but also in ministry and in living and carrying on with our callings and our vocations. And we have a Savior in heaven who knows what we need and when we need it. And one of the things he does is he brings people together. Because he is determined to, he's planned to distribute his grace, disseminate his grace through people. Through people. He doesn't just send shockwaves from heaven, right? (laughs) He sends a brother, he sends a sister, he sends an Aquila and a Priscilla. And if you are one of the weary, if you're one of the ones that's growing weary, and uh, uh, I know some of you are, the Lord knows how to bring others in, into your life. But Paul did something here. He went to them. He went to them. And maybe what some of you need to do is you're getting tired is open up about it, you know. Go to brothers and sisters. Talk to them. And we have some new families that have been uh, coming into the church and joining us over this last year or so. And maybe some of them, you, you need to go to them. Open your life to them and you find out. You may find out that, that, that the Lord sent you an Aquila or a Priscilla or a pair to help you. Now the second thing the Lord provides for Paul to encourage him at this very hard time, this critical time, is material provision. And he does this in three different ways. He provides, first of all, for him the opportunity to work. He gives him a job, right? He comes into Corinth, and when he's running out of funds, here God brings this couple who, evidently, they owned a business because they owned several homes. They had a home in Rome. They had a home in Corinth. Wherever they went, they were hosting things and opening up their homes. Whether they sold one, they moved to the other, I don't know. But they had this business, and it was Paul's very trade. And so Paul, who was a tent maker, uh, got involved with them and was able to use his hands at that point as he was running out of funds to provide for himself. And Paul wasn't afraid to do that. Paul wasn't afraid as as, as an apostle or uh, as a messenger of Christ, a messenger of the gospel, to provide for himself when he had to. Um, And especially from what we understand, he was really concerned about that When he came to this city, for whatever reason, Paul had a way of picking up on that it would be a problem in Corinth if he looked to them for support when he brought the gospel. Uh, There was a practice that was very common. It was was done in Athens, done in in Corinth. And that that was that men like philosophers, those who would teach these wise men, uh, they would gather in the Agora and other places, and they were charged for their, for their teaching. And so Paul wanted to make sure that when he came into Corinth, that there would be no obstacle to them listening to him and thinking that since he's bringing such a different idea, that he was in it for the money. But Paul, on the flip side, on the flip side, Paul believed and taught that he had the right to make a living from the gospel and that churches ought to support those who devote themselves to the gospel. It's just that he was careful when he came to Corinth. But what happened is 
these Corinthians, <laughs> which was part of their problem, started to receive other so-called apostles who did charge and charged quite a bit, and they started wondering if Paul was even a real apostle because he, he didn't have a fee, you know? And Paul's like, how can I win with you guys, you know? But listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Why don't you turn that? I want you to hear this. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. If you're using one of our Bibles, that's a page 957. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9, <clears throat> Paul says to the, so remember, he's writing to this very church, the very town that he went to, Corinth. <clears throat> Sometime later, and he says in verse 11, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, these are these other, other teachers who came in, do not we even more? And nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? <laughs> And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. He's talking about the temple in Jerusalem was still standing at that time. And he says, verse 14, In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. So there you have, you see Paul... He, uh, he strongly believes that he has the right to be supported by them, but he chooses in Corinth not to do that at all. But God provides Paul a way to do that, a way to not put an obstacle in front of the gospel by bringing Aquila and Priscilla who are involved in his very trade. Tarsus, where Paul was from, was known for some of the things he's been encountering. It was known for its education and philosophy, which is great because he was just in Athens. It was known <clears throat> for, um, for its um, uh, tent making. And uh, when he comes to Corinth, tents were very important at that very time in God's pro providence because the Isthmus games, these, these games like uh, sporting games, uh, were, were about to happen, and tents were largely used for that. And the games happened in 51 A.D., which is when Paul was there. So, you know, he shows up uh, at just the right time for his business, right? If you uh, make Christmas ornaments, it's great to show up in November, right? At just the right timing. And, and that's what, what the Lord did. Uh, now, through the years, through time, because uh, of, of what, what Paul did, when ministers of the gospel or missionaries support themselves, it's called tent making. They don't actually make tents, right? <laughs> but now it's called tent making. It has been for some time. What does it mean? It means you support yourself. And, and more and more missionaries are having to be tent makers because there are certain nations that will not allow people to come in on the basis of being a missionary to communicate the gospel. You must come in with a trade. You must come in with a skill. And so that's what many uh, missionaries are experiencing these days. And more and more, I'm seeing that pastors in our country, in, in especially rural areas, are having to be, at the very least, bivocational, trying to 
be part-time tent making and part-time being supported by the church because of the, the, the decreasing sizes of rural churches. So that's the first way the Lord provides for Paul. Perfect timing, uh, uh, an opportunity to not put an obstacle in front of the gospel, to use his hands in his own trade. And secondly, uh, he provides for him when, it's verse 5, says, Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia. Here's how we know they provided for him. Paul was occupied with the word. In other words, <clears throat> what was happening, it says above, that he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. He could, only, he could only minister in the gospel one day a week on the Sabbath because he was busy making tents the rest of the time. But when Timothy and Silas arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. That, that word occupied means he was absorbed. He was engrossed completely with the word. And he began to uh, engage again the Jews and also uh, the Gentiles who were listening and coming, coming close. Well, how is it that now he's able to devote himself full-time to the ministry of the Word? Well, it's because these two brought financial support from the churches in Macedonia, some of the other churches that uh, Paul had planted. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verse, verse uh, 7 uh, through nine, Paul, again, he's talking to the church of Corinth. And remember, they had this issue again with the fact that maybe he's not real because he doesn't charge high fees, you know. And so he says in verse seven of Second Corinthians 11, did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? <laughs> Was I sinning when I didn't charge you a fee? And then he says, listen, He's a little facetious here when he says, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. <laughs> and when I was with you and was in need, this is verse 9, he's talking about Acts 17. When I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and I will refrain from burdening you in any way. <laughs> Because evidently you have a problem with this. <laughs> so he, he's, he, was, uh, he was unleashed, in other words. He was, he was probably frustrated, glad to use his hands, but he really wished he could be in the Word full time. And he was able to when he received the support which came from the other churches, and particularly the church of Philippi. And we'll read that in a bit later from Philippians chapter 4. And as a result, he was able to devote himself to the Word of God. And so this, I think this... <clears throat> This illustrates several things. It illustrates the truth, first of all, that the whole body of Christ contributes to the mission of the church. The whole body contributes to the church. Here he receives support from the churches in Macedonia, right? Uh, you could be involved by going, we've said in the past, like Paul, or you can be involved by supporting like the churches in Macedonia did. You could be involved by being a part-time tent maker, serving in certain capacities uh, elsewhere, as we do have some people here in our church. But we can all be involved, and you are all, I suppose, involved by contributing, by supporting the gospel ministry, supporting the work. And I just want to say this morning to you, you are, you are pleasing to God, beloved. As a congregation, you are pleasing to God, like the churches of Macedonia, when you support the ministries of the gospel on various levels 
of this congregation. The ministers, the pastors, we're grateful for that. And our mission partners across the world. Because it, it, and you are also not only pleasing to God, but you will receive the, the greater blessing. We need to believe and trust the Lord when he says it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. And scripture says that those who water shall be watered. Uh, We're blessed by you and you will be blessed by God in your sacrificial giving. And that really is the greatest blessing. Uh, When Paul received from Macedonia gifts that he knew from Epaphroditus came from Philippi, he wrote back and you remember the conclusion of Philippians in chapter 4. The apostle says, this in verse 15 you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only even in Thessalonica you sent me help for my needs once and again not that I seek the gift but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit And then down below in verse 19, he says, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. When I reflect upon uh, this church and the early years of this church and getting this church started in uh, 1995 and then 96, 97, I think about the lean years. Uh, some, some, Some months were pretty tough personally. Uh, for Sherry and I, <clears throat> at that point, we had dug deep into our savings and used most of our equity in our previous home uh, and investing. In, but then this church rose up, and what strikes me more than anything is over all these years is the faithfulness of God through your faithful sacrificial giving. That the, the, that the support when it needed to be increased was increased at the time when it became critical, not only for us personally, I'm not just talking about staff, but even as the church when it came to the time to build this building, if you remember I've shared several times how God provided what we needed. And when this was finished, we were finished debt-free. We have no debt. And it's been the provision of God through your faithful, sacrificial giving all through these years. Um, I want to encourage those of you that that may find yourself in in times of, uh, of financial difficulty. And maybe it's because of your commitment to your own convictions, you know, about what it means for you to be true to your convictions to Christ. And it's causing you uh, some sort of financial difficulty. I want to say to you that your Heavenly Father sees and knows your needs. He knows the needs of His servants. And I can say this from this text. We understand this. And from experience. God in heaven provides where He desires to see the work flourish. Where God desires to see the work of the gospel flourish, whatever the difficulties may be, the challenges, he will provide to it. He'll see to it. He saw to that in Corinth. When one man comes strolling in by himself, running out of funds, uh, and he comes into this town, and God meets his needs as he did. And I know the Lord can meet yours as well. Now, the last way the Lord provided for him materially was, <clears throat> was a building, a meeting place, did you hear that when we read through that? Isn't that interesting? He gets kicked out of the synagogue, and he, he, he symbolically, you know, shakes the dust off, a very strong statement, you know. I'm free of your blood. <laughs> this is on your head. Lord, I need a meeting place. How about next door? <laughs> right next door to the people that gave him the boot. 
And so it says there, back at Acts 18, in verse, in verse 6, that he had been opposed, he had been reviled. And then verse 7, he left there and went all the way to the house of a man named Titius Justice, whose house was next door to the synagogue. <laughs> and as a result of this, what we're to read is this, is that as a result of Paul meeting in this house next door to the, to the synagogue, and can you imagine what it was like when it was time for synagogue meeting? <laughs> uh, why are they going over there? <laughs> They're going to that house. Uh, more people are heading that way, and eventually Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, comes to faith and his entire household. Uh, and then it says that more Many people came to faith, and so God provided this, this just stellar opportunity, almost with a sense of humor, uh, right next door to the synagogue, to show that he, his work, the gospel, will not be stopped, and certainly not by material problems. Listen, we've always said buildings and stuff is the easiest thing for God to do, or to provide its changing hearts that's that takes divine power, you know. And here God circumstantially provides a place for, for Paul to meet and carry on his ministry. Right now we're praying for Tony Arns and the church in Folsom, uh, the church plant. It's just barely getting going and they need a place to meet. He's entered into negotiations or discussions with another group. Uh, hesitate to really call them Christian. I don't know that the gospel is really present there, but uh, they're willing to discuss allowing him to use the facility there you know uh we'll soon be talking about others that need to do the same thing this is what happened in costa rica when eddie and the church plant in northern costa rica needed a place and and they were moving from one place to another and in god and his providence provided just a perfect situation it happened when this church got started it's this this is what god does okay <laughs> he's in the business of of providing where he desires to see the gospel flourish. Uh, and so he did for Paul. So Now the third way, and maybe the most significant way that I think you should take from this, that the Lord encouraged Paul, was by providing him, meeting him with these motivating promises in that vision in verses 9 through 10. It's interesting that following the statement that many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized, the next statement is this, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have, I have many in this city who are my people. Very interesting that Paul would need to be told that even after he saw the fruit. I think here we see, here we see the transparent humanity of Paul, and it's very necessary to see that. We can't have people on pedestals like that. There's only one who belongs on the pedestals, the Lord Jesus. We see the transparent humanity of Paul and the loving, tender mercy of the, Paul, of the Lord. You know. Paul has seen all these great things happen, all these great provisions, and yet by verse 9, the Lord has to come to him. The implication is he needed to be told to, don't, to not stop talking, to not be afraid. 
By verse 9, for whatever reasons, his strength and courage appeared to, to evaporate. Paul had, Paul had tremendous gifts, beloved, but he's not superhuman. He's not superhuman. He's just like you and me. No one is superhuman. And it's always, a, a, to me, very helpful to reflect on the experiences, the real life experiences of people that maybe you have looked up to. You know, uh, for me, most of us are, 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 are dead people. <sighs> like Charles Spurgeon, the great pastor, British minister of the 1800s, you know, he openly admitted several times publicly uh, described his struggles with depression. Uh, he said once, I am the subject of depressions of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. This was a uh, public confession of his humanity. And it's necessary. You know, you need to know this, that this happens, you know. And, in one, and, and, and having read him often, he says one of the times when he would experience the lowest lows was after the highest highs. He says after great spiritual victories, he said, the enemy would slip in, you know, slip in his sword. And maybe that's what was happening with Paul, you know. It was a great time, but he descended to a point so low that the Lord had to manifest himself to him in a vision to pick him up, to pick him up. Uh, I have a book, a well-known book by Spurgeon called Lectures to My Students, a collection of lectures that he would give to uh, the students at, his, at, the at, at the college for pastors that he had. And I have it on my nightstand. It's been there f forever, for years. And there's one chapter I have practically memorized. I've gone to it many a time when I'm getting ready and feeling like this. The title of the chapter is the minister's fainting fits. <laughs> and I could just about quote it to you verbatim, you know. Um, the best of men are men at best. Why would Paul feel so weak? Huh? And why would he feel so afraid? Well, let's just think of weak again for a moment, you know. Sometimes it's just the sheer weight of responsibility to be true and accurate to the word, to stand before people and say, thus says the Lord. And to know you will give an account. Let not many of you become teachers, says James, right? And this just becomes a mental load that does not leave. Monday morning, for Paul, Sunday morning, <laughs> after he was in the synagogue, it is right back again. Knowing you will offend, knowing that some will be, uh, become critical of what you say. Sometimes it is the psychological load or the spiritual load of dealing with personalities, dealing with people's sins, dealing with people's hearts, their stubbornness, doing it all, as Paul says, with meekness and gentleness, lest you yourself fall into uh, these problems, you know, these sins. Sometimes it is, the, it is that mental load of finessing everything, finessing these relationships where there's hostility and trying to be a peacemaker, make peace. All these takes a, this takes a toll. It takes a mental toll. It takes a spiritual toll. It takes a physical, psychological toll. And when Paul arrived at Corinth and the people he was reaching, Corinth was full of people like that. <laughs> and just because they came to faith like this doesn't mean that they were made holy in an instant. 
he had, the, the letters he writes to them is filled with him trying to address these relational and sinful problems and their heart problems that he was dealing with. And when you were a man like Paul, who, who he's, he describes himself this way elsewhere, where he says that he agonized, that he's using the Greek verb agonizomai. I agonize in my heart to, to make, present every man complete in Christ. And so it killed him when he saw these people whom he loved struggling with sin, even though he's gone over this a hundred times with them. And yet they're back, you see. It killed him, it killed him. And so Corinth, just think about the people Paul had reached and where they were when he was ministering to them. Corinth was a port city. Um, it was on a thin isthmus, or the, picture a thin neck of land, a, a narrow neck of land, and there was uh, two bodies of water, one on each side, and so it really actually had two ports. It became a great sailor's town. There was a lot of commerce there. Uh, it was actually a new city, newer, when you think about the ancient world. It had been destroyed centuries before, but 100 years before, Julius Caesar decreed that Corinth would be rebuilt. So this city was 100 years old. It's said that there was not a single building that was older than 100 years old, and there was still a lot of building going on, a lot of commerce going on. If Athens was the cultural center of Greece and the empire, the Roman Empire, then, then um, uh, Corinth was becoming the commercial center. But it was a town that was very diverse, very cosmopolitan, filled with idols like Athens, right? And therefore filled with sexual immorality. It was a town filled with perversions. It was a sailor's town. And you know why sailors went there, right? It was a, a, sound fill, a town filled with vices and debauchery. And the Gentile believers that came to faith when Paul went there, many of them came from that kind of background. And their struggles continued when they came to Christ. In chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, listen, not many of you were noble. <laughs> you didn't come from the high-class families. Right? And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, later in that letter, he tells them what they, where they came from. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. <laughs> this is where you came from. And that is what he was facing. The next statement is, but, but, right? You were washed. <laughs> You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, why does he have to tell them this? Because they weren't behaving like what they were. And so you could see how this took a strain on Paul. These are the kind of people he was dealing with. This is why he would be weak, tired. Why would he be afraid? I think he was afraid because what happened there before, in the verse above, <clears throat> when the Lord came to him, yes, he had seen fruit. He had seen things happen. But once again, he was kicked out of the synagogue. And probably Paul was thinking, here it goes again. It's coming around again. And they were, it's time. I'm sure I'm just a few moments away from another whipping, <laughs> another beating. Maybe they'll stone me like they did before. And so he was afraid. Even Paul came to the point where he was 
fearful of what it meant for him to be faithful to carrying on in the ministry. Well, we don't know, right? We don't know exactly why he felt as he did. But it's important to know that he did. You need to know that he did. And you need to know that sometimes your pastors feel like that. You need to know that. And you need to know that sometimes your community group leaders feel like that. You need to know that. You need to understand that. You need to believe that. And uh, you need to pray and be an Achille and a Priscilla and, and uphold them and strengthen them. And so we have this incredible moment in Paul's life where the Lord manifests himself again in a vision. And I think it's the voice of the Lord Jesus. He just says the Lord. Sometimes in the book of Acts it can refer to Jesus or to God the Father. But it's very consistent with Paul's conversion and the Lord speaking to him in that way and a reiteration of the Great Commission, Lo, I'm with you always. So I think it's Jesus who manifests himself in a vision in the night. So frail was Paul that Jesus had to speak to him. He begins with a gentle rebuke, stop being afraid. The tense of that verb means he was already doing it. He was saying, stop being afraid. I know you are. Don't be intimidated. Secondly, he restates his mandate to him. Continue speaking. Keep speaking. And then lastly, he, he, he provides these divine motivating promises. Now that's the devil's goal, is to silence the tongue of those who speak the gospel. However he can silence it, he will silence it. And one of his great tools is discouragement. And so the Lord comes to him and says, gently, stop being afraid, keep speaking, and then he upholds them with this threefold uh, motivating divine promises. The promise of his presence, for I am with you. The promise of his protection, that no one will attack you to harm you. And lastly, the promise of his purposes being fulfilled. I have many people in this city. So we got more job, more work to do here. Think of those three promises. First of all, this promise of his presence, for I am with you. A restatement of the promise and the great commission, right? Go and make disciples of all nations. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Several times in the Bible, this promise of God's divine presence with his messengers is given to encourage and motivate them. I am with you is the same promise given to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. It's the same promise given to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1 as they began to enter the promised land. It's the same promise, I'm with you, given to Jeremiah when he was called to preach and be that, and be that prophet to the nation that was sinning. Why can the Lord's servants persevere in ministry? You want to know why they can persevere? Because Emmanuel, God with us, that's why. Because God is with us. But sometimes the Lord's servants need to be reminded that God is with us. Yeah, Paul knew the theology of this. It's not just the theology of it. You see, it's, the, it's, the, it's a sense in your conscience of the palpable reality of the presence of God in your life and His concern for you. You need to hear it in your conscience. The very hairs on your head are numbered. Your head. 
not just every head. Your head. I know you. He is, I am with you. You may feel, are you afraid today? I know some of you are. Are you afraid today of what's going on in our culture? You're afraid of where the country's heading? I know many of you are. Are you afraid of what's happening? You're afraid to speak up? He is with you. He doesn't lie. He is with you and you and me to the end of the age. Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? And of that, he does not mean that we won't suffer, but that he means that nothing, whatever you and I will experience in the coming days in this country, whatever you and I may experience for, like Paul experienced in Corinth, it will not alter God's purposes for you. If God is for you, who can be against you? And the next thing he promised him was his protection, right? I'm with you. No one will attack you to harm you. Pretty soon, 18 months later, he's attacked, right? But no one harmed him. And so he promises his protection. Now, we can't, we can't claim that promise for ourselves. That was a specific promise to Paul and only for while he was in Corinth. <laughs> we can't claim that somehow that God will keep us from being attacked for our faith in this country or and what's going to happen. We, we, we can't claim that, but we can know this. We can know this, and you have to know this and believe this that nothing will come to you that hasn't already passed through the hands of God. And that whatever comes to you and me, they will, it will fulfill God's purposes, which ultimately are for your good. We saw that in Romans 8 some time ago, right? And so we can know that, and we need to be reassured of that. And lastly, he promises him that he will f- complete his purposes in his life. He's referring here to the elect when he says to him, <clears throat> for I have many in this city. Notice present tense. He has them. They're his already. <laughs> I have many in this city who are my people. They belong to me. Why do they belong to him? Because he's the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. John writes in Revelation that he purchased for God. He purchased already for God a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. He's referring here to the elect whom God has foreloved and chosen since before the foundation of the world in Christ, as he says in Ephesians chapter 1. And the Lord knew every single one of them by name. He knew they were his already. And he had determined that he would use Paul to reach them. Jesus is the good shepherd who says, I know my own and my own know me. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them. And so, Paul, I have many more here. I aim to call them. They will hear my voice, but they will only hear it through the gospel, and I have chosen that it be from your lips, from your tongue. So keep talking. Keep talking, he says to Paul. Let this encourage you. God may have yet many more people here in this Corinth of the Bay Area, (laughs) but he's also determined Not only that they are his, he's also determined to save them through the gospel off the lips of people like you and me. So keep talking. Keep talking. Well, all this brought a great encouragement to Paul, and as it ought to encourage you, we have a Savior who knows our suffering. He knows when enough's enough. He knows what we need. He knows you have needs. You have a Savior who endured Gethsemane 
He knows the weight that you feel and he can come to you. You need to hear these promises and the way they apply to you. <clears throat> they encouraged Paul. He stayed there 18 months preaching and teaching and teaching. And finally, finally, time's up <laughs> and here comes the attacks again. But the Lord kept his promise. They won't hurt you. They're going to take it out on this guy called Sosthenes. Now, this poor guy Sosthenes, who was he? Well, it says there that he was the ruler of the synagogue, meaning here's what could have happened. Crispus was the ruler, but he believed in Christ. <laughs> so this may be what happened. Sosthenes, the new ruler, they go in there to make their case against Paul. Sosthenes doesn't make a good case. Gallio says, just get out of here. So they go outside and they take it out on their ruler, Sosthenes. If we can't beat him, well, then we'll beat Sosthenes. That could be what happened. Or it could be that somehow Sosthenes himself was coming to faith. Or had come to faith. Because when Paul writes 1 Corinthians, he writes and he says, not only am I writing, but Sosthenes says hi. <laughs> We're not sure, but it may be this Sosthenes who came to faith. So the sum here, beloved, the summit of all is this, that rest assured, in, in, in the way things are going in our world, you may, if you don't already say, I feel weak, I feel fearful, and I'm trembling. But you and I have a Savior who is the Lord. And nothing comes our way that hasn't passed through His hand. And He is aware of your needs, are our needs, materially. He is aware of our needs psychologically, the needs of our hearts. I quote Spurgeon again because of his pains, and I looked them up again last night. I just went back to that good old book. He said, the road to sorrow has been well trodden. It is the regular sheep track to heaven. And all the flock of God have had to pass along. But what he tells us here, you need to be reminded, is that you have a Savior who first passed along. He first walked that way. And so he knows how to lift you up. So learn how to lean into him. Lean into him at this time. Let's pray. Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we're so grateful. Lord.